Good morning, everybody. It's good to be together. Had my my welcome and my delight and pleasure for being here. And uh, and as we pick up our sermon, I'm going to ask Hilda if she'll come and do our reading. Um, thank you, Hilda. We reading from Philippians chapter four again. Good morning, everyone. I'm going to read uh, from Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 to 9, in Shona, and then in English. Philippians chitauko chechina, papa verse 4, kushika pa 9. Farai monashe, guvadzose, ndimnoti zve farai, unyoro wenyu nga huzika mwe, kuvanu vose, ishe uripedo, Musafunganya pamsoro pechimwe chinu asipa zvinhu zvose nemunyengetero nemukumbiro nekuvonga mikumbiro yenyu ngai izikanwe kuna mwari zvinorugarerwa mwari runopfura kunzwisisa kose rucharinda moyo yenyu nemifungo yenyu kuburikidza na Kristu Yesu pakupedzisira hama Zvinu zvose zvechokwadi zvinhu zvose zvinokudzwa zvinhu zvose zvakarurama zvinhu zvose zvakachena zvinhu zvose zvinodikanwa zvinhu zvose zvinorumbidzwa kana kunaka kupi nekupi kana kuchinga rumbidzwa chipi nechipi fungai zvinhu izvi zvinhu izvo zvamakadzidza nekugamuchira nekunzwa nekuona mandiri itai mwari werugare uchava nenyu the english version rejoice in the lord always again i say rejoice let your gentleness be known to all men the lord is at hand in nothing be anxious but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your thoughts in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever things are true, whatever things are honorable, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, and if there is any praise, think about these things. The things which you learned, received, heard, and saw in me. Do these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Amen. Thank you, Hilda. Do these things. Do these things. So, we're looking at habits of hope. Uh, We've been building on, as it were, the theology of Easter, and now we're looking at how do we make that sit in our hearts and in our minds, in our attitudes and in our behaviors. And so last week, we looked at the input of rejoicing, making a habit of not just expecting joy to be an outcome, but starting with joy as an input. Remember that in the Richard Wurmbrandt story? I mean, nothing in his circumstances would have made joy an outcome, but he made it an input. He 
completely transformed his own experience. Um, and then the second thing is we looked at this idea of not just gentleness, but a deep dignifying of people, of uh, courtesy and honor and respect for the integrity of others. And so we've been in Philippians 4. Paul has used several military metaphors to describe a battle not to lose your joy, a battle not to get depressed and downhearted. And it can be a fight, isn't it? So against anxiety and worry and stress, a battle against prayerlessness and a battle against entitlement and being resentful. And, you know, it's that space where we face the darkness and we have to say to it, you shall not pass. And so the battle is going on and his primary solution is things they must do. Right? You do these things. Put them into practice. Build these habits. You're going to see uh, some profound outcomes. So he wants to coach them essentially in living and fighting differently. So now we're going to continue today. So we pick up and we continue. Habit number three, pray differently. So verse 6 says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition and with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And, uh, and so I heard about a priest who stepped into a taxi, which shortly afterwards tried to overtake on a blind drive. And uh, there was an accident. Both the priest and the driver were killed, and they arrived at the pearly gates. And if you think... Yesterday's fanfare was a big deal, which I didn't watch. Um, but, uh, you know, there's fanfare, trumpets, the angels rush out, and, uh, and they, you know, the saints come and they greet the taxi driver. And he's rushed to the front of the queue, and the priest who's spent all his life serving and working for people, he gets to the back of the queue. And eventually, you know, the taxi driver's long in enjoying the pleasures of heaven, and the priest comes stumbling along, and eventually he gets to the front, and he says to St. Peter, I know that taxi driver. He was a scoundrel. I mean, he was a rascal. He lived reckless, as recklessly as he drove. He endangered lives. I spent my entire life caring for people, serving people, praying and preaching, why did he get that welcome? And so St. Peter sighed and explained, My son, when you were doing your job, people got, got bored and fell asleep. When he was driving his taxi, they prayed. <laughs> so what's wrong with the joke, okay? <laughs> now, I'm serious. Give me a little bit. It, it, there's something a little messed up in the thinking of what's wrong with the joke. <laughs> you shouldn't, well, you shouldn't scare, you know, prayer fed by fear is not really, uh, you know, a, a great spirit in which to pray. The joke assumes that God is desperate for prayers. That like prayers are like this currency and heaven's running short. And so, you know, God is desperate for prayers. And so no matter how you pray, as long as you pray. Now, I've heard that from well-intentioned people. You know, people that say, no matter how you pray, as long as you pray, you'll be fine. I'm 
that's how Jesus put it. Lots of people pray. I mean, some of the most fervent prayers happen not in church, but in casinos. Have you watched a penalty shootout? Especially in South Africa. I, I mean, there is over juju and praying and who knows what else is going on. And spiritual warfare and a bunch of other dark things. People pray when swiping right on Tinder. People pray all the time. People panic pray before exams. They Oh, when reading their Facebook news feed. And Jesus tells a parable about a, a Pharisee who's praying to himself. And he makes it clear that not all prayers get heard. Heaven's not desperate for any kind of prayer. Because all their words, all their fears, all their anxieties, all their pride is actually simply being turned into an amen type of exercise. And when they say amen, they're actually telling God what to do instead of actually. I mean, his greatest teaching on prayer, his most sustained teaching on prayer. You see, prayer has maybe just become another place to worry, another place to stress, another place to beg. Another place to be as worldly as anywhere else, as those examples show. And so, if we're going to get a habit of prayer, we must have a habit of praying differently, is how Paul wants us to understand it. Praying in a way that leaves anxiety and fear and despair far behind us. Ways in which when we're praying, those things can't stay. Got to pray in such a way, learn to pray, habitually pray in such a way, all the time, for everything, in such a way that the spirit changes around me as I am praying. You see, Jesus didn't just teach us to pray, he taught us to pray differently. Matthew 6, you know, we know it's the Lord's Prayer, and there's a whole lot of stuff before and afterwards in which he probably some of his greatest teachings on prayer. And what is he wanting us to do? He's wanting us to grow secure in our identity as children of Abba. You, you've got Abba in heaven, and you pray to our Abba in heaven, who's, who's so amazing and holy and beautiful and we pray not for our will and kingdoms. We pray for his. Your will be done. Your kingdom come. And so we learn to pray in a different spirit. So a key insight is this. Prayer can't sanctify fear or pride or selfishness. I can pray those things but they have no power. That's what the Pharisee prayed. He prayed his pride, and he prayed his self-righteousness. Prayer can't sanctify dishonor of others, or entitlement, or resentment, or bitterness. Prayer 
can't redeem judgmentalism or conspiracy theories. Prayer is ineffective until we pray differently. It matters how we pray. So learning the habit to pray and to pray differently. Now, that's a two-step process. We are going to have to learn how to pray. Not just in the casino when you're rolling the numbers or whatever it is. You are going to need to learn to pray well in the situations that matter. And so Paul is now coaching us back in Philippians 4 as a follower of Jesus. And he says, I want you to pray like God is near. is so aware of his presence. The Lord is near. The Lord is at hand. And I want you to pray with gratitude and thanksgiving in all things. All, all your prayers and petitions do so with thanksgiving. You see, covering our prayers and requests with the presence, capital P, and with gratitude changes us and it changes the spirit in which we pray. I just want to unpack that a little bit. So we need to learn this habit of thanksgiving. You see, thanksgiving is like this powerful drain-cleaning detergent in our spiritual lives. Like gratitude has the ability to get rid of so much rubbish. And so, you know, the drain is blocked and it's full of fat and it's full of yesterday's stuff and it's full of everything and you pause down some wonderful, life-giving, completely sincere thanksgiving and gratitude. And what's got to leave? Entitlement's got to leave. Pride's got to leave. There's no such thing as a self-made woman or a self-made man when you understand gratitude. What gratitude does, it reminds us of the things that matter most. And it takes our attention off ourselves and it puts it back onto God. And so my praying is literally transformed when I wrap it around. Like all the prayer is carried with sense of gratitude. Even my sorrow prayers, even my laments are still to be defined by gratitude. And so when we're taking someone through the valley of the shadow of death, one of the things we deliberately look for in our grief journey is what can I be thankful for? I'm feeling so much pain, and I'm still asking God for that. How can gratitude define these moments, these days? You know, when you're walking in a way that dignifies and honors God, and you're working out how to be attentive to the presence of God, the Lord is near. You're praying with gratitude. Something happens in the environment around you. That's what Paul is wanting us to understand. This kind of prayer isn't natural. It's a habit that takes work to put in place and discipline to keep there. Because it's so easy to revert back to sort of like our own versions of prayer couple of weeks ago, we were discussing prayer at a prayer meeting, and someone said, prayer is always warfare. <laughs> to, to pray habitually 
is a fight with your life, with your diary, with your commitments, with your other habits and routines. It's a fight with our phones, let alone a fight with the devil and all his temptations. I swear, it's just, it's going to be a fight to sign up. This is conscription time. differently with deep gratitude aware of God's people around you and then you become aware of God's people around the people around you and begin to discern what he's doing in their lives now your prophetic eyes are starting to open now your insight and understanding of what becomes possible because you're no longer driven by fear of what the enemy is doing you're driven by consciousness that the Lord is here he's in this person and what's he wanting to do in them He says, you do this, and his peace will come. His peace will fight for you. More military language. It will form a garrison, a guard. Not just a guard of honor, but a guard ready to contend for your heart, your inner self and person and emotion space, and your thoughts, your thinking, your mind, your imagination, your conscience. Your whole inner person starts being safeguarded by the God, by the peace of God. I know, I know I'm not the only one, but sometimes uh, pastors, the phone rings, and you get asked to pray into life and death situations. Like you race to the emergency room or to the ICU or you fall on the floor when you are. Because you know that this is too a life and death situation. Whether there's been an accident or a medical emergency. Question, how do you pray then? Like surely this is different, Craig. Do you, do you still bring all these things? Absolutely. The more, more you I prepare to step in those situations. I can say, Jesus, thank you that you are here. I'm walking into this in your presence. You've heard some of my stories about I had to come to believe in the presence of God. I had to confess my own unbelief and say, Jesus, you're not here. I am, you know, and no, it's not true. And to walk in knowing the Lord is near and to walk in conscious of the peace of God with gratitude in my mind more than anything, especially when it's life and death. I want to walk into that room carrying these realities that God is here and that no matter what the outcome is, we're going to praise him, we're going to thank him, we're going to trust him, and we're going to bring peace into this chaos, anxious space because of the spirit of God. We don't help people by joining their distress. We help people by bringing the spirit of God. Like when it, when the stuff really hits the fan, you want to pray like this. It's not the time to throw it out. It's now the time to prove its power. And boy, that's majestic. Again and again and again. So building the habit. Praying and praying differently. Praying and praying differently. 
not surrendering to fear, anxiety, or panic, but actually bringing his presence, just being aware of it, consciously locating yourself in that space and making sure that we trust him deeply. Habit number four, he says, I want you to redirect your thinking. Pray differently and then almost like think differently. Not sure about our anxiety that he was talking about is self-inflicted because of what we're thinking about all the time. Where we, we're allowing our thoughts to go and what they're spending their time on. <sighs> and, you know, the dilemma is that the devices that are meant to simplify our lives are devouring them. So last week I gave you some stats on 2,000% of couples in the same day and all of that. But they were slightly out of date. They were pre-pandemic. So I did some more work this week to find out what are we thinking about. And in 2021, okay, this is mid-pandemic, the average screen time per day for tweens and teens, that's somewhere between 11, 12 to 18, I don't know. Average screen time for girls, any guesses, per day? Hours per day, screen time. Someone, someone gave me eight. 8.02. I said average, okay. Um, eight hours of screen time. And the boys? Nine. 9.16. There we go. Like, wow. Like, I, 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 I'm not quite sure how to process that. You know, like, this last week, my screen time was three hours a day. So someone else is making up for me. These are not habits of hope. I, I mean, I don't want to, like, you know, they are not going to help your heart space. Like, I don't know how else to do it. You know, I can't stand on my head. But, but something's got to make us start to realize that if I am going to carry hope, it's not just that I'm going to sing about Jesus' songs on Resurrection Sunday. It's about that I'm changing my behavior every day of the week and building habits that actually help me carry a hope because I'm redirecting my thinking. Like, literally, until I get a hold of that which has got a hold of me. Until I switch that which is grabbing, like literally devouring my day. Like, I don't know if you're okay with it. I'm, I'm like, gosh, Lord, I don't get the BBC talk scene like this. Like, please, please, think of the gift of life. Think of how important those developmental season is. Who's discipling our kids? It's the people programming the algorithms on the apps. Now, I know Bill, I mean, Bill, what's his name? The rich guy. I mean, he gets enough flack on what online. But, I mean, at some point, Microsoft Bill, uh, you Gates, yeah. Lift up your head, Jay-Z Gates. Yeah, yeah. From the screen, yeah, lift it up, you ancient Lord. Um, 
study from the University of Glasgow linked overall screen time to poor sleep quality, anxiety, low self-esteem, depression, suicidal ideation and behavior, childhood obesity. Chunky kids, how much screen time? And then cyberbullying, in which the danger is that your kid could be doing it, not just receiving it. And you wouldn't know. So maybe some soul-searching resets. I mean, if this is what our kids are facing, what are, what are we modeling? Becomes quite a question. Look at what Paul says. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, it's got this sense of elevated royalty. Whatever is right, the word is the sense of just. Whatever is pure, it's, it's not dirty, it's not, it's not defiled, it's not compromising. You know, pure water is just water. How much mixed messaging do we have to go through? Whatever pure, lovely water, beautiful, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. Think about these things. In Romans 12, Paul calls it renewing our minds so that the world doesn't squeeze us into its mold and we end up just looking like everybody else. Now, breaking the pattern in our minds does not mean then surfing the web for good news stories. You know, the newsrooms have realized what their news is doing to people. So that now they've got little sections, you know, the good news story section and the heroes of hope in South Africa. Da, 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 and they put that in so that there will be enough to lift your emotional state out of complete despair to make sure that you come back to their website again. It's clickbait. It's monetized information. It is. It's not, no, it's not a conspiracy. It's how it works. They've got to pay their salaries. They've got to do the thing. And they've got to pay Rupert Murdoch in the end and whoever else. And it also doesn't mean, you know, escaping to funny videos on TikTok or, you know, whatever it is that you're hoping is just going to give you the lift. What is this going to take, this habit? It's going to take accepting stillness and boredom. Remember last week we spoke about that old-fashioned word that people don't know anymore because you, you just don't know what boredom is because every time there's a lull, you reach into your pocket and you pull out the antidote, you know. Sorry, I'm being a bit heavy, but... We have not learned how to be still with our own thoughts. So he says, pause, and then look at what you're looking at. Imagine just being able to meditate on your thoughts. In the Bible, we, we learned when I was young, started, I'd have pausing with what was called a 
quiet time, and you read your Bible, and you pause, and you be still. And then you write in your journal, and then you would pray. Bring back the Bible. Bring back those moments when you're not being triggered by a hundred other things. Bring back the moments when your thoughts are redirected. So I've got a radical question. I hope I put it up here. What apps would restore hope in my life if I deleted them? I, I mean, guys, what redirecting our thoughts? It's a serious question. Because if this thing is taking six or seven or three hours of our day, we are going to need to do some work. Habit number five, modeling and mentoring. He says, so whatever you've learned or received or heard from me, seen in me, do it. Put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. See, a great way to learn how to carry faith and hope and love is to get alongside, learn from, and imitate people who are already doing it. There isn't an app for it. There are people for it. There are relationships for it. There are prayers and conversations for it. Paul is offering the best known learning known to humankind. It's called impartation. You get alongside someone who gets it, and you stay with them until you've got it. That's what Jesus did with the disciples. He was carrying it. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Leave the process until the Spirit of the Lord was on them. And they could preach good news to the poor, and they could bind up the brokenhearted, and they could do what he did. Paul isn't bragging or being egotistical uh, when he suggests this. Allowing what someone else knows and possesses to become ours starts with when we honor them. Not just watch or listen or admire, but we honor them. And then we take the risk and we put into practice the things we have seen they do. And so the question is not just which apps do I delete, but which people do I install in my life? People. Relationships. Community. Small groups. Time together. One-on-ones. Or threes or four, two or three gather in my name, says Paul. It's not just which apps do I delete, but if I'm going to have the habits, which people do I need to include, follow, walk alongside? And then if some of these things are yours, which people do you invite where you can share a little bit of what God has given to you to them? We could spend a lot of time on this. But we move to number six. It wasn't in our reading, but it actually should be in the chapter. The NIV headings are just wrong. Okay, they shouldn't split this section from the one before. So Paul chained in a Roman jail under the emperor's guards is as happy as Larry. I mean, he's writing about joy throughout the whole letter. In fact, he says he's tremendously content. So he says... I'm not saying all this stuff because I'm in need. I've learned to be content 
whatever the circumstances, in fact, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. And he says this, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all of this through him, Jesus, who gives me strength. Notice I can do all of this. The disciplines, the actions, the doable. We want to we wanna say, I can do all things, you know, and we just want to insert whatever worldly success we think, you know, I can do this job or I can do this. So I, I don't know. This is the stuff, these doable habits that Paul is saying. I, I do these things through Jesus who gives me strength. Now, I found this really interesting. That, that, let's go back. He says, I have learned to be content. Now, the root word there, so this is why I say it links to the previous thing of modeling and mentoring. The root word there is the word for disciple. It's the word from which we get disciple. I have been discipled in these things. I have been discipled to be content. I have learned how to not want more and more and more. I've been trained. I've been equipped to be content. I am discipled in contentment. How else must I say it? He's wanting us to understand this has been an intentional process. It's not just a happy feeling one day when you realize, aha, we are so used to instant solutions. We don't understand how much work it takes to reach contentment. And in this contentment, he is not jealous. He is not insecure. He's not craving more. He's not craving less. And he's writing from a place where sometimes he's literally been freezing cold and naked and hungry. Gosh, I think we need this, eh? If we consider the pervasive, fastest growing religion in the world, not just mammon, mammon's got a sidekick, the little beast, it's called consumerism. This new religion served by its priests and priestesses who are not called vicars or pastors or father, but influencers. People who are given stuff for free, just like pastors, which they carefully curate into social media moments. And they take those experiences and possessions and things, and they carefully curate it to make it look like the best life ever. And then we've hit follow. And these things appear in front of us. And this free step offers us their new religion. And we believe that they have come that we might have life and to life to the full. When you know it's a religion, this is the promise of life. And it's carefully curated. To make us discontent with who and what we have in our lives. And you're told you deserve to be happy. You deserve better. And so you can trade anything in your life if you're feeling 
this country. Except it's completely designed to make you feel discontent and incomplete and dissatisfied. And accumulating stuff becomes proof that we have made it. We are we're succeeding. And therefore, any lack or threat to the supply chain becomes a threat to my identity. It becomes a threat to my dream self. I'm just giving you stuff from the advertiser's training manual, okay? I mean, the philosophers know this stuff is there. This isn't Craig's conspiracy. It's in all the books. This is how it works. So a threat to the supply chain becomes a threat to my dream self. Whether it's a threat to my salary, or which, you know, is the means that I get there, it's actually a threat to my identity. And so I cannot be content. Because I have become dependent upon what Consumer offers me and how it defines me. And then there's the inevitable feelings of worthlessness, anxiety, disconnection, loneliness, and failure. Oh, by the way, we've got a solution for that. Just swipe, change the app. There's no escapism waiting for you. And so the spiral just goes on and on. It's a vicious and deadly cycle. This is not even to talk about the fact that in this space, and guys, why am I on this? Because I'm fighting for your habits, and I'm fighting for mine. And we know what we spend our days on. That we ourselves have become the product that companies now buy and sell using cookies to profile us. You're the product. Your information is literally the thing that people are spending billions buying. You didn't know you were so valuable. You know, it's no longer God made me, it's that Bill Gates pays for me. And all this information is being traded all the time. This marketing is increasingly drawing on artificial intelligence or virtual omniscience. And it's being directed at us to get us to buy. And as I thought, as I was praying about this, I'm thinking, Lord, I'm supposed to be preaching on hope, and this is so gloom and depressing. Imagine being so content that the company that puts its AI onto you eventually concludes that your profile is useless to them. They can't monetize you. You can't be bought. That's contentment. It's when they look at all the stuff you're spending your days on, they realize, we can't, we can't sell this guy nothing. He literally is happy. She's happy with what she needs and the things that are in her life, the people she has around her, we can't monetize this profile. It's a little bit like Daniel. You know, when people try to catch him doing something bad, they said the only bad thing he does is pray. Imagine the only bad use of my money is that I gave it away instead of spending it. And that I was outrageously generous and kind and compassionate and concerned for justice instead of accumulation and achievement and success. I carry a 
a difference. Our systems are the habits of hell. They lead us in the way of death. Paul says, I can do all these things, and Jesus is going to help me. Like, he's going to give me the strength to live like this. And he's going to give you the strength to live like this. He strengthens me to be joyful, to be available, to be present, to be grateful, to be peaceful, to be focused, to be attentive to holiness and beauty. He strengthens me to be content. Isn't that good? Isn't that good? Oh, man. I want to spend my afternoon, my days, my hours learning the things of God. And when it comes to contentment, David said in Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd. I live without lack. If he's shepherd, I've got everything I need. If he's shepherd, if he's my guide and you know, leading me on paths of righteousness, if I'm in his pastures and I'm drinking his water and I'm following his path, even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For he is with me, his rod and his staff comfort me. And don't think you're going to live in mean, stingy lack because you've become content with God. He says, he spreads a table before me and my enemies have to watch. They look because they're present, they're there, they're always going to be there. But in their presence, I get to feast at his table and he anoints me. He anoints my bald head with oil and my cup is full. No, my cup runneth away, it runneth over, it is so full of abundance. When I'm content in God, I have found the key to abundance. And surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life.